Today on The Tech Reset, we're excited to host Neil Savadas. Neil is the product marketing manager at one of Gen Z's favorite social media platforms. He's a LinkedIn top voice, and he has an amazing newsletter called the Find Gen Z series. On today's episode, we're going to discuss AI, the future of technology in schools, social media, influencers, impacts on mental health with Gen Z, and a lot more. Without further ado, please welcome Neil Savadas. Neil, welcome to the Tech Reset Podcast. Thanks for having me so much. I'm excited to jump in. We have a lot to unpack. We're going to be talking about Gen Z, items on work, relationships, impacts of technology, AI. We have a busy agenda. We'll see how much we could get to. One question we like to start off with, though, on the show is what's something technical or social media related, a habit that you wish you could improve on? Yeah, absolutely. I would say I think I just have a bad habit of spending a lot of time on my phone for social media primarily. I think there's a lot of apps out there that, you know, just have my phone and it kind of gets cluttered, like probably just having too many apps on the phone. And that's probably definitely something I want to get better with is like being okay with say like deleting an app for a week or so, you know, or during a work week or something like that. But I still feel like having gone to that point, definitely still want to just have, you know, apps on my phone and stuff, just to have it there. And I want to get past that. Well, I don't think you're alone. A lot of folks are very cluttered on their phone space with a lot of apps, but thanks for sharing. So you're a Gen Z thought leader. You're all over LinkedIn. You're all over all the top networks. First, let's define Gen Z. I'm sure most folks understand what that is, but in case the audience doesn't, I don't want to assume, how would you define Gen Z? Yeah, absolutely. So I've always been like these like generational breakdowns that maybe people have seen. And you could say the official time zone of when Gen Z was born was probably between 1997, 2010. That's generally where like, you know, the pundits put it. I would say what makes Gen Z Gen Z primarily is the fact that Gen Z grew up during a time of godlike technologies. And what I mean by godlike technologies, I mean technologies that don't just like sit there and are used as a tool. They almost have this larger power to influence you, to shape the way that your mind or brain works, stuff like that. And examples of these godlike technologies that Gen Z really grew up with and didn't remember time before include social media, search engines, smartphones, and AI. And I think what's really important is that not only has it like, because we didn't remember a time before a lot of these things were around, we have no perception of, let's say, a non-connected world. Even if, you know, you're a Gen Z or that maybe is a rebel in the sense that, you know, doesn't really like use social media, doesn't like technology, you still are surrounded by it. And that includes your friends, and everything that you grew up around. So you still are kind of plugged in in that way. And I think that is really interesting because it's done a couple of things for young people. Number one, because Gen Z is so socially and digital native, they have like this inherent power if they don't like something to speak up about it. I think that's the difference that a lot of people, a lot of younger people in previous generations didn't have in the sense that I think young people have always been the purveyors of like, say social change and stuff, but Gen Z has a power with this thing in their pocket, with many other outlets to evoke change. And so I think that difference of just like growing up around godlike technologies is what makes Gen Z, Gen Z. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the first generation to, to be born into that, right? And so you know, right. generation prior experienced a lot of that and still does. But Gen Z, that's all they've known since they've been born. That's fascinating. How have your perceptions and kind of attitudes changed towards technology as you've evolved in your career and, and throughout the years? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say growing up, I wasn't necessarily like the fastest onto social media. I think you could definitely feel the influence of it. I was on 
Facebook, Snapchat, maybe when I was like 15 or 16, which actually, especially nowadays, is a lot later than most people. And I think part of that was this intimidation factor of, you know, oh, everyone else is on it. It seems exhausting just to have it. And this was probably, you know, this was 10 years ago. Even now, I feel like, you know, that you see an issue of like nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds getting on social media, and it's very normalized for that to happen, even though platforms across the industry, Facebook, TikTok, et cetera, actually require users to be 13 and above. But obviously, kind of easy hack that you self-input your age. And so that's how a lot of people are are able to bypass it. But I think over time, as I got into social media, I think there was, you know, obviously the honeymoon phase of like, oh, this is awesome. You know, I can see what a lot of my friends are doing, seeing what the rest of the world is like. And I think the interesting thing about maybe being Gen Z or growing up with social media is that there's a lot of things you actually learn just by like, say, following 800, 900 people that aren't necessarily your closest friends, maybe it's people you go to school with, and actually learning about their lives. For example, uh, one benefit is like, let's say that you don't have a lot of cultural perspective on a different culture, maybe someone who's Indonesian, maybe you're not Indonesian, but on through like, say their Instagram story, you can subconsciously basically learn about Indonesian culture if they're posting about it. And it's like very interesting where it's like, oh, now I have this suburb of knowledge about this that I never actually like looked into. But because of social media, it allows people to share their different perspectives and on the flip side, let people consume these different perspectives of information. And so I think that was, you know, the amazing part about social media that I first kind of saw. And then over time, I think there's the kind of normal talk and chatter, I would say, among people in my age group that kind of gets popular, just complaining about, oh, you know, I'm addicted to my phone. It's almost like this funny thing that everyone talks about and no one really does too much about. And I think that's because a couple of reasons. Number one, I don't think it makes people think it affects them as much as it really does in the sense that no one's thinking about, you know, how growing up consuming 10,000 pieces of content per day that's just shaping like our brains in the sense of like being high dopamine, not being able to focus. I think that's not something you really think about because you think that's just your like face value of the way you live your life. And, and so you don't really know the difference of like what it's like to not have technology. And then the second thing I think people are starting to realize though that it's not necessarily good for you, but there's also not a blueprint to fix the issue itself in the sense that I compared a lot to like, you know, eating junk food, right? You're allowed to have junk food. I don't think, you know, to be healthy, you don't necessarily only need to eat clean the entirety of your life. But obviously too much junk food is not great. And there's like a path to say eating less junk food, right? It's not necessarily about ignoring it or, you know, shutting everything off because at the end of the day, you know, your mind still wants the junk food. You actually have to have a plan, right? Like maybe you're going to the gym, maybe, you know, you choose which, you change up what your grocery list is like. And through those different steps, you'll actually be able to address the problem. And so your phone is kind of like junk food for your brain in that sense. And I don't think that a lot of people know that there are maybe tools or it's still early in that sense of like, there aren't necessarily ways or a structured ways that people know about that can actually help you address those issues. And so I'd say that's really how it's kind of shaped me in the sense, you know, growing up, always being around it, really got into like the honeymoon phase. There's a lot of value in social media, but now I think everyone in my age group is acknowledging that there are issues with like digital technologies and the way that we have relationships with them. And the biggest problem though, is that people don't really know how to address that. Fascinating. So much to unpack. And I want to go back to one of your first points on the age. In most platforms, they have a a hard floor of 13. What's your opinion? Do you think that uh, social media is appropriate for, I guess, let's start sub 13 and then also call it 13 to 18? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, 13 is a pretty solid age. I know there's researchers out there that are still trying to figure out the exact answers to questions like what is the right age to bring someone onto social media? 
what's a good amount of screen time? Because, you know, screen time itself isn't necessarily bad in nature, but there's probably too much and too little. Or not, sorry, there's probably too much. Maybe there isn't too little, but there's not well-established research on this because it's such a new idea of smartphones that will be around, what, like 16 years, 17 years, truly. And so I would say, like, my opinion is I think 13 is a pretty good number. And I think social media actually is valuable in especially younger demographics to help connect with their friends early on. Because uh, again, I give the example of like how you're able to kind of sub subconsciously learn about say, other people's lives through social media. It can definitely have a lot of value in that. And just because I'd say nowadays, especially it's such a normalized thing to have, maybe keeping your kid off social media may not actually benefit them too much in the long run. I think it's one of those things of like, you don't want to hide it from them because they'll see it. Make sure they understand how it affects them or maybe the pros and cons of it. So I think that's my general approach is that I feel like you are kind of kept out of society if you prevent kids from like being on it in general, because they're gonna, they're gonna hear about it, right? Like what happens in our world is the microcosm of it is what happens in the schoolyard, right? Like that, that's where people I think learn about what's in or what's happening. And so I think that's really my perspective on it is that you definitely want to give them kind of the guardrails of like what to address. But I think 13 is at least based on popular opinion, I think what is a good age around when social media can be introduced based on what the platforms have, but also it's not necessarily wise to keep it out of kids because they're bound to hear about it or kind of be on it regardless. Got it. And I want to double click on some of the items that they're in content that they're consuming. But first, how much responsibility do you feel some of these big platforms, we all know the big names, have for yeah. kind of protecting content, overseeing advertising content, changing algorithms for calling that 13 to 18? Because that's a very critical development stage of the brain. And you know, a 13 or 15 or even a 16-year-old can't reason the same way that an adult can. So I think my question right. is, uh, how much responsibility do you put on parents versus the platforms to manage and triangulate what content kids are seeing? Yeah, I think it's a collaborative effort. Um, I don't think the platforms themselves are fully responsible. I don't think parents themselves are fully responsible. I don't think the government is fully responsible for addressing this because truth is, it is kind of the issue of our time, right? Never, but never in history have we had so much access to content. I think there's like a stat outside of, you know, teens are seeing like 10,000 pieces of content per day. And that is a lot of content, probably more than they need. But on the flip side, right? Like, let's say you take the extreme approach of like the platforms being very, high censorship and vetting every single piece of content that's posted, it kind of does disrupt the experience on that end as well. There's a ton of vetting, I think, disruptions to the overall experience. And so there's somewhere in there, there's like a fine line, right? Of like, where you're not necessarily disrupting the experience, but there's also content moderation. And obviously the platforms themselves, I think, are very aligned that, you know, we don't need to have all content on our platforms. But also you have to figure out kind of the standards of like what is defined as right versus wrong, what should be shown, what should not be shown. Like this is an example, maybe not for the under 18 demographic, but let's say like the levels of nudity acceptance across the world, right? If you're going to police the U.S. in terms of content moderation, how do you police a different country that maybe is more open to nudity or or stuff like that? Or the flip side is very much extreme. And so I think it de definitely deserves a collaborative effort. And I think a lot of platforms are open to it as long as it's not targeted toward one platform. If Facebook and TikTok and Instagram and, and Snapchat were to come together and what the government with parents align on right versus wrong, what should be shown, what should not be shown. I think that would be something that I think the platforms themselves would be open to as well. Even with like government regulation, I don't think necessarily platforms are 100% opposed to government regulation. Obviously, they don't want necessarily like 
something that over that they feel oversteps the bounds of government regulation. But if there was a way to work together in the sense of like, okay, we agree upon like industry best practices, even similar to the video game industry where they established MPAA ratings, that was actually a non-governmental effort. That was actually via like the video game companies themselves coming together and being like, okay, we need to establish, you know, some standards. So I would say that's kind of my approach is that it definitely is going to be a collaborative effort. And it is, I think, truly a test of our time because there's so much content that's coming out every single day. And it's a question of, you do want some guardrails, but like, what are those guardrails? And I feel like we haven't necessarily found the established ones we want to have. Yeah. So I mean, there's a lot of interesting things going on with legislation at the state level, at the federal level. To your point, though, of tech companies having that conversation and being collaborative, how much of that is going on, do you think? Is that uh, speculative and it, it's not really in practice yet? Or do you feel that you know, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, that some of these huge ones are actually having those conversations of how do we make this a safe environment? How do we have a win-win here? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think all the platforms have dedicated digital well-being teams now, you know, who are dedicated to privacy, dedicated to solving some of these issues um, that are just generally new to the world. You know, never before have people had so much access to like, let's say an example of like during the Ukraine, beginning of the Ukraine-Russia war, there was a lot of videos of the like the boots on the ground, like, you know, videos of Russian soldiers literally like making TikToks or, make, or posting on Twitter, live tweeting what was going on. And that was happening so fast, right? Like real time, the platforms themselves obviously don't want, you know, kids seeing videos of like cities being blown up, right? Just like circling the internet. But I think there are teams at all these platforms that have a goal of making it better. Like what are those standards? I think one example, right, is around screen time. And this is actually a CEO of TikTok show, Chuki actually talked about this in the sense that it's not optimal for our platform to have people spending three, four hours a day on the platform, because at some point their health is probably affected. What really is, is truly best for the platform is that the, the users are on the app a healthy amount and getting a good experience, whether that's 30 minutes, an hour, et cetera. And the goal obviously is to just have as many people on the platform as it can. So it's not necessarily about maximizing the screen time of people on the platform. That doesn't necessarily make the best product experience in general. I think it's really about sort of figuring out those like guardrails and guidelines of what is best for everyone and the, the platforms themselves have teams that work on that. So if that's the case, though, if the number make it up two hours, three hours is capital amount, why not cut it off as a hypothetical? Why not have a time limit within the app? So once you've reached that cap in a day, then you're cut off and maybe there's uh, you know a couple of days you could go over, but it doesn't allow you to spend nine hours. Average teenager spends north of nine hours a day on social media. So yeah. if, if that's the case, if that's the position of Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and I know you're not speaking on uh, behalf of the you know safety and compliance team, but what are your thoughts yeah. on having an enforced cap on time if, if the intent actually and the spirit actually is to protect mental health? Yeah, I, I think that's a very valid question. I think it'll be interesting to see if any of the companies kind of take an extreme approach to it, because I think a lot of platforms like TikTok actually have screen time limit built in the platform in the sense that there's now this feature of when, when you've been in the app for a long sitting of time, like 30 minutes, 45 minutes, it'll like tell you to stop and be like, okay, like, are you sure you want to keep scrolling? Probably time to take a break. But then there's always that passcode that you can get through. And that I think there is more that could be done. Like, for example, making it harder to kind of get past that. Like right now it's typing in a code, but let's say that these platforms added like some kind of like challenging or difficult like brain exercise to do on, on the phone to get through it. There definitely could be more guardrails. I think it's probably one of those things where 
you'd probably want to probably see an industry-wide occurrence happen first before one platform takes the lead on that of like being the first one to be like, okay, fully ban. If you are over an hour a day, like you will literally not be allowed to be on the app for until the next day. I don't necessarily see any platform doing that just yet. That would, I think be a very big, obviously good approach, but like a big approach relative to, I think the industry. Yeah, it was more hypothetical. It's it's, it's not going to happen with at least the current platforms, but in, in practice yeah. and in theory, it's interesting. So we have a lot to get to, but I, I want to touch on a couple more social media items. And the next is influencers. And you know, you had a really good point of teams being able to get access to the world, seeing different cultures, different humans that they might not associate right. with in real life. And there's definitely some positives to that. But what are your thoughts on the impact of influencers, I guess not only on Gen Z, but on anyone, but let's focus a little bit more on Gen Z. We we get a lot of conversation from parents on concerns with that. So either fake influencers impacting self-image or dangerous influencers that are spreading dangerous challenges. Kids have died from the choking challenge, from the tide challenge. So what are your thoughts on kind of that balance? That's just a fact that kids and everyone's going to be much more drawn to the optics of an influencer with millions of followers, at least the optics of this glamorous life. But then the actual impact of that is pretty severe, especially with teens. Self-image, over 50%, actually over 60% of teenage girls report feeling worse about their body after spending more time on social media. So where do you feel influencers fit in, I guess, on a benefit and a, a detriment for Gen Z? They absolutely can be a very big detriment. I think part of the problem is that there's a lot of trust in kind of this, like, almost like they have this random credibility based on their following or just being active on social media. A lot of these people in terms of the credibility and in terms of their certifications of knowledge or influence, they may not actually have that, but because of like social media, they kind of have the freedom to say whatever they want. And as long as it sounds good, people will take it as facts. And I, th- I can think of two different examples of, I think, industries that are written by, you could say, these like influencers. Obviously, the influence of... Um, say beauty influencers on real beauty and how to flex a lot of teenage girls is definitely a big one, but a couple other ones include, I think the fitness industry and social media. Um, there's, I think a lot, a strong trend of, let's say take steroids and then, you know, post videos that they're natural and it makes people either one think that, oh, like I can attain this body naturally, or when they find out they didn't, they kind of resort to taking these steroids. Bad, really bad example of an influence. I think another thing is with news, misinformation. I think Gen Z makes fun of the parents for always falling for all these like Facebook ads or whatever like that. But I think Gen Z themselves are just as bad with misinformation because a lot of times people say, oh, I heard it in the news or some, I heard it through the grapevine. What they mean is they found, they literally saw a TikTok video that someone just said something and that, that becomes fact. And so now like these like Gen Z news sources, some of them can be very credible, but at the end of the day, a lot of them aren't necessarily citing where they get the information from and are kind of spreading the influence before they even have any kind of credibility or backing of truth. And so a lot of times that's how misinformation spreads. Even people getting canceled, people, what happens in a foreign country in the news, someone says one thing, someone got arrested, and then all of a sudden 10,000 people see a version of the truth where they see one tweet that says someone got arrested and then another 10,000 get the second tweet that says, oh, actually it's fake. And so I think it definitely is detriment overall in the sense that there's a lot, it's kind of the wild, wild west where a lot of people are putting things out there and they have the freedom to, but they're not necessarily held accountable, you could say, for being right. There's not, there's no motivation or accountability for being right. It's more motivation to be fast. And so I think that is the big issue with 
all the influencers that are out there. There also are benefits too, right? Like I think it's opened up this whole new path for people to either build businesses or build careers or become activists rather than before where maybe you had to have some kind of credibility, some kind of funding to do a lot of these things. It really has kind of democratized that sense. Like a lot of things in this industry, I think there is a good and a bad. And it'll be interesting to see what kind of guardrails you can pit on these things, if at all, especially on influencers. Yeah, don't get me started on fitness and nutrition influencers. And we're not going to get into nutrition wars, but there are some just absolutely categorically incorrect (laughs) influencers out there that are spreading really bad information and causing a lot of harm in terms of uh, mental health, physical health, dietary health. There's also some that are doing really, really well. I think it's very difficult even for adults to ascertain and differentiate between the accurate ones and the fake ones. What do you feel Gen Z's sentiment or at least aptitude is on on influencers? So are, are they aware that, wow, like half of these influencers have predominantly fake followers and probably don't know what they're talking about? Or are they completely oblivious? How, how in tune are they with uh, some of the dangers yeah. of the current influencer landscape? I think it's interesting because even with TikTok especially, It kind of has changed the game in some ways with this idea of influence versus influencers. Mm -hmm. So I think Instagram drove this wave of like your follower count led to your credibility and it led to a lot of Instagram influencers, you know, who kind of build careers around it. But I think with TikTok, especially, it's kind of built in this level of the normal person or authenticity or humanizing things to the sense where let's say you're promoting a, a blender. Maybe the influencer or the ad that works is not necessarily the one where the Instagram influencer with 100,000 followers pits a video out. It's more influential if like some random person just put out a video of them using the blender, just a normal person and bring influence that way. And so I think there is an interesting line there of people like Gen Z especially don't mind relying on people who don't have as many followers for, you know, the source of truth, building on what, what your point was or uh, what you're talking about, whether they should trust the influencers, I think it, it definitely makes it even a bigger problem because, you know, normal people necessarily maybe, not that it's a bad thing that normal people, you know, are influencing what people do, but I think it definitely makes it harder to understand what's right versus wrong when you can trust someone who like has no following or, or anything, just post one video. And so I think people are very aware. And actually one thing that, one trend that you're seeing a lot in younger circles is this idea of de-influencing where people are literally focused on either telling you the truth about a brand or to focusing more on like sustainability and talking about, you know, you don't really need all this stuff. It can also go both ways there in the sense that some of these influencers can actually help de-influence some of the bad influence that is happening out there. Interesting. Now, the de-influence trend is is fascinating and that might end up adding a little bit more value. So one more hypothetical, and, and this may be a tough one, but you mentioned 13 as the average age. We see yeah. a lot of data and there's still a lot of research to be done. We're, we're in the early stages of this entire world here in this ecosystem. But what would be the downside of waiting? So if you're a parent and the 13-year-old, what are we missing out and what's the downside of waiting until they're, let's call it 16 or 17? Excluding the downside of if you're the only kid not on, literally, if there's a school yeah. of 500 and you're the one that's not on, let's discount that downside because that's a, a, a different discussion. But outside of that, let's say an entire community, an entire town waited from 13 to 17. Is there any downside? Are we missing out on anything? Yeah, it definitely would have to be, I think, a larger effort. If it was larger effort, 
if I, I think it would actually be a very positive influence. Um, I think some of the downsides that could come out of that, I would say number one, when I'm thinking about like, you know, a kid who's 10 or 11, social media isn't just about the ability to gain followers or et cetera, consume content, but it's also, you know, many ways how people connect with each other like earlier on. And that could include, I think, if I'm thinking like a nine or 10 year old, let's say who you know, plays video games, right? And wants to find other people who have that same interest. It may, they may not only be in their physical world. So I think there is value in that sense of like the internet opens up a whole broad amount of opportunity to find your community, find, find things that you like. A lot of learning that a lot of these kids do nowadays is not just from the classroom, right? Because every curriculum is different. Every level of education is different. With social media, especially with platforms like TikTok that are discovery-based where you're not even expecting, you're open-minded, but you don't even know what you're going to get. The ability to kind of learn through those things, learn about the world, learn about even subjects that or you're learning about in your school that your teacher can't explain to you very well and then go online and it makes a lot more sense. I think that is kind of the value that social media may have. But I think if you move the age up to say 13 to 17, that was a more conceited effort of, you know, everyone kind of getting involved in that. It could, I think, really help. I don't think it would necessarily be a huge downside. Maybe the way that people were raised were was similar to kind of the way it was before social media came out. No, no, it makes sense. And I, I want to move on to education, but you, you brought up one point where teens might be, or Gen Z might be able to you know, go on TikTok or Instagram and learn things that their teacher isn't teaching them or that they don't have in school. In theory, that's interesting. I think my pushback would be, you know, back to the influencer conversation, what's the quality and the qualifications of what they're learning, right? Is it fake? Is it dangerous? Is it legitimate? And so yeah, you, you could get a lot of information, but is that good information and accurate information? It, it's a wild west in terms of content and 10,000 pieces a day and nine some odd hours. I, I think that's really, really difficult for a teenager to then decipher, okay, this is good information to learn versus this information just because just having an abundance of information, that's not a good thing. If it's good quality information, right. then yeah. And if it's a different information that adds value for sure. But I would venture a guess and my position would be there. there's more incorrect, damaging information than positive information. And even if I'm wrong on that ratio, being able to filter through that's incredibly difficult. But I, but I want to talk yeah. about education because I think there's some amazing, amazing opportunities with technology. We're going to move to AI in a little bit, but how do you see Gen Z and educators and schools evolving in terms of how they're using technology to learn in the classroom, anything related to, right. to tech and, and education? I think it's, it's a really interesting discussion, especially with ChatGPT and I think what came out of that, especially because there was kids that were expelled from schools for using ChatGPT for some of their work. And I think that's a really bad short-term approach to something that has a much more long-term discussion. Because in some ways, ChatGPT is just another development of technology to like make us better learners in the classroom. In the same way that Google allowed us to kind of get people, I, I, th I think I read some stories about Google even coming out and how at first people weren't allowed to use Google as well because they were concerned that it was you know, cheating. And then over time people realized, okay, actually Google tests maybe a different thing, tests people's resource ability and, and allows people to learn information a lot faster. And I think ChatGPT, and to AI tools that come out definitely belong in the classroom because it is a changing age in the sense that these are technologies that are going to be around, I would say, for you know, a long time in our, in our world. And so when you bring in the new, you bring in the new wave of students into the, the working world, having those tools earlier on is going to be much more beneficial for them to handle a much a changing world. 
Well, let's talk about that. I just had a call with the principal last week and their summer program for writing. No kid actually wrote. <laughs> they were all coming up with ChatGPT articles and, and you know, full written essays. So you, you mentioned yeah. that you think it's good to incorporate ChatGPT. How would a school do that? So if you're talking to a principal that we're working with and they're trying to figure out how do we, in a healthy way, in a productive and educational way, incorporate ChatGPT into the classroom, what would that look like? That's a great question. I think like with... What I've seen, and there's an educator at NYU, he's, I think, the dean of students at NYU. I'm not sure what his name is, but he's actually talked a lot about, I think, some of these ways of changing the narrative around, you know, ChatGPT in the classroom and using it. Again, I think for me, it kind of goes back to the like resourcefulness aspect because there's a lot of information out in the world. And by using some of these tools, I think people are able to learn how to like just gather information in the same way that Google kind of did earlier on. And I think something around just like testing, it's a different thing, set of testing that you need to do. I think, you know, when you're testing people based on their knowledge, may, maybe for like tests, obviously, maybe not use ChatGPT, but I think it, it is definitely part of the curriculum. I personally am not as, you know, educated on, you know, what could possibly be the ways to go about it. But yeah, I definitely recommend the NYU professor for information like this. And we'll look into that. And, you know, I think the challenge is kid, not less in the classroom, but more out of the classroom. So they have a writing assignment. And instead of using ChatGPT for idea generation, which there's been a lot of authors that have gone on record saying it's actually helpful. I'm not writing my new novel with ChatGPT, but it gives me inspiration and ideas. But I don't think teens are, are doing it that way. They're using it to get out of actually writing the essay. Right, getting an actual thing. Yeah, so. yeah, I think that that's a very fair point about even just like the creative industry in general, not just in schools, but like a lot of people are pretty opposed to, let's say, like ChatGPT coming up with like creative ideas or, you know, companies replacing workers with like chat, work, replacing workers with ChatGPT. Let's compare it, let's say for like a market agency, right? Who come up with pitches to, to clients. And then let's compare that to a kid trying to write an essay like from scratch and once write a good quality essay when you're pitching on, on the market agency side when you're pitching to a client if you can have your ideas you can show your ideas rather than tell your ideas for example maybe using like an ai generated imagery software it makes the pitch that, that much better and that much more efficient to move along in the process and i think similarly when you're writing an essay from scratch a lot of students spend a lot of times on just like the parts that maybe don't necessarily challenge them to be better, to be more educated. It's more so just like, okay, I have writer's block right now, or I I don't even know where to start. I need to make an outline first. Like some of those things I think are, are parts that are sure like valuable to learn in some ways. It's kind of like going through adversity, but in other ways, it just is making the process way less efficient. If they were able to get inspiration for ideas to write the essay on or have ChatGPT or one of the Microsoft or Google AI tools build an outline for them based on what they're thinking. It can, I think, open the door to even better quality work because they're not wasting time on the, I would say, like efficiency side of things and more so spending more time on the idea generation. But obviously, as you said, like there's people who abuse that and there probably would need to be some kind of guardrails for that. But it doesn't seem like, I'm curious to hear from your side if there are things that you've seen that people have used it successfully for. No, not yet. So, at least in the classroom. In theory, yeah. so, so you hit it spot on. If a teen is using it in that way where it's idea generation for you know this pitch for marketing class or let's kind of compare and contrast my outline versus Jet GPT outline, yes, but it, it becomes so addictive because it's so easy to then go down the rabbit hole of having it write even more copy and more paragraphs and eventually you know you have a 60-70% Jet GPT written 
essay. So that, that's where it is. It, what we found is the teams just don't have the discipline or the tool set to kind of know how to navigate ChatGPT in a, a thoughtful way that they're then abusing it. So it, it's still so early. I mean, ChatGPT is you know, the tip of the iceberg, yeah. but I think it's going to become an increasing challenge for schools to police and monitor that and ascertain, you know, if we're looking at this essay, who actually wrote it, right? But I do agree that there's opportunities to leverage it in a smart way that impacts uh, kids positively. I, I would disagree, though, on not teaching the foundations of outline writing. I think you need to learn the foundation first. And then if you want to use tools, it'd be like learning. You still need to learn math. And then, of course, you're going to use Excel and you know some great calculators to uh, make the process more efficient. You're not going to run through an entire equation with pen and pencil, but you need to understand the fundamentals. But it's, it's going to be a fascinating time in the coming years on how schools, and we're working with hundreds of schools around the country on this, how do we navigate these technologies that aren't going away, these softwares that aren't going away and that kids have access to and mitigating the downsides of them while still focusing on how they could actually benefit and augment the educational experience in a, in a positive way. So it's, whew, buckle up. It's going to be a really exciting time to come and I'm, I'm excited and I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic that you know the communities and the schools and the students will all come together to you know figure out what's the right equilibrium. Like in the sense of, you know, who would necessarily you know, influence, I guess, how that will come out to be. Like, obviously, when you come to students, they have their biases. With teachers, they have their biases. And figuring out how you bring it together and have all the voices in the room in that sense to come up with, like, a solution that obviously doesn't derail learning, but also doesn't derail progress and being able to have success in a changing world. The world is moving so fast nowadays if you really pick guardrails on anything, a lot of times those students, they're the ones who probably will have the most success and potential to build a better world with that new technology. But if you prevent them from using it as well, it may derail that progress. So it's complicated. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's the parenting challenge of our generation. I think this is the educational challenge of our generation and future generations. It's a complicated problem to solve. And we don't know all the answers yet. But that's why we're all working hard to try to make the best of it and create a really safe space for this new young generation. We touched a little bit on AI and you know, ChatGPT falls into that category. Let's talk a little bit more about AI and kind of the history of AI and what's the overall sentiment with Gen Z? Are they optimistic? Are they scared? What are their thoughts? Yeah, I, I think Gen Z is, is very scared of AI in the sense that AI just seems like this very futuristic thing that is going to you know replace a lot of jobs. And that's, I think, the talk that comes out a lot of times. And I think if you're you know Gen Z or I guess Gen Alpha, you're 10 to 20 to just start your career. You're trying to figure out, try making this world. And it, it feels weird that this ominous thing out there that basically will leave us like redundant or useless. And so I think it really adds to the motivation of why should I care about what I'm learning about in school? Maybe the traditional paths of like, okay, you know, math and writing is a great foundation, but is it going to make me sustainable in, in the long run of just like life? What's interesting is with the internet, people are using AI tools now for this as well, but it's like a 10-year-old can theoretically, you know, start a million-dollar business just like that from dropshipping from something crazy, just using the tools they have on the internet. Obviously not, most of them may not succeed, but people can. That's what motivates a lot of people to do things like that instead of following kind of these traditional career paths that don't even guarantee you. Like you go to college, right? Just because you have a degree from college doesn't mean you get a job, right? Like you, you still have to apply. And even in this economy, especially with a lot of jobs, just not being available for a lot of these early career Gen Zers, I think people are turning to this and really, I think, just concerned about the future when it comes to AI. Now, the funny thing about AI is that it obviously encompasses such a broad 
spectrum of terms. It's not like this is the first time it's been sure. around in the past year, right? It's been, you know, part of our ecosystem for 10, 15 years. And so even though like people are getting more into it now, it kind of has been around for a while and it comes in different shapes and forms. But I think overall Gen Z is very much, I think just very like concerned about how AI will leave them redundant in the future, if at all, and how to even become AI proof. Well, yeah, and I want to talk about jobs in a bit, but w- with AI in general, do you feel there needs to be more regulation on and universal standards on what's appropriate? You know, deep fakes and fake news using AI and AI influencers, and where do we kind of cross the boundary of what's human and not? So I guess, general opinion, do you feel there should be more regulation and, and standards around use of AI? Yeah, I, I think... Part of the problem we're seeing with these godlike technologies that I kind of mentioned is that a lot of them are proliferating before they're even guardrails put on them. And so a lot of the issues that you'll even see from, let's say, smartphones, you won't even see for five, 10 years. I think a lot about the physical stuff, about like our thumb, our wrists, our posture. And so it's really important that the government or these kind of private boards are aligned with like where history is at this point and focus on building things that are future proof. And so I definitely think that regulation for AI is something that it would be very beneficial. I think you saw even Sam Altman sure. uh, kind of try to lead a little movement. Obviously, it had of interest there, but lead a little movement of trying to halt the AI development that we have in our world. But I think overall, it'll be very beneficial, not just for AI, but for all the godlike technologies out there, like smartphones, social media, search engines, to I wish that when they came out that there was more guardrails there for it to be successful. Because again, as I mentioned, we're going to feel the influences of these products years after they come out. And it's really now before they become huge to regulate it and make sure we get it right. It's fascinating. And, and we have another episode that will probably air right around the time of this episode. And it's all about how AI and tech is impacting Hollywood with the you know current writer and actor strikes going on and how it's completely right. changing the landscape of producing movies. So that's, that, it's fascinating. And there, they're actively working on what's the right standard, what's the regulation, and how do we find a middle ground? So I, I want to take it back to jobs. And you know, this, this kind of turned it in, we, we, we dovetailed there from AI, but I think two questions. First, do you feel that AI actually is going to take a lot of jobs for Gen Z? And is that a legitimate fear they have? And then second question, related or unrelated to AI, how is Gen Z thinking about using tech and social media for their careers and for the job market? Are they on LinkedIn more? Are they using TikTok and Instagram to further their careers and resume? Yeah, I think it kind of goes back to what you just mentioned about like Hollywood. I think a lot of concern is if I was the CEO of a tech company or CEO of any company and I decide whether I wanted to invest in headcount versus invest in technology that can potentially do a similar job I think a lot of people would be leaning toward the technology side of things because you also don't have to deal with the human element of people, which can't be a good or bad thing in that sense of if you are managing a company. Um, And so as a result, if you were in that position, maybe everyone would make that decision. Then like what's even possible with like jobs that are coming out and you see like all these mass layoffs. And I think even in my generation, especially right now, you already had this microcosm a few years ago of a lot of jobs requiring more experience for entry level people and then now alone i know a lot of people from like we're just graduated or just graduated a year before to graduate since the pandemic that have been struggling to find a job struggling to find a career because of all the kind of tumultuous things that are happening in the economy and then also with the ominous coming of ai and so i think people are just very pessimistic about 
like careers and, and what they want to do. I think with how AI will replace those jobs, if at all, there's definitely, I think, possibilities of AI replacing more operational kind of jobs initially. And then even when it comes to, say, creative jobs, Sam Altman actually is very bullish on this idea that creative jobs will be replaced as well. This operational stuff of like creating imagery, art, et cetera, is very, very possible with what AI already can do with Midjourney, for example. Five, six years ago, when Midjourney type things were coming out, the art was pretty bad. So people were like, oh, we're going to be fine. But now it's really getting enough data and, and you know practice to actually build creatives that are better than what a graphic artist can do. I think AI definitely will have opportunity to potentially replace jobs. I think it really comes down to, I think, the quality, though, in terms of what it will truly replace it. And I, one example I can give is like, let's say you're a client for a marketing agency. And uh, keep going back to that. In AI, if you were defeated something like an output, a lot of times it's just going to spew out old ideas in new ways. And it could be maybe 60, 70% good. But I think real creativity comes from almost human elements that you can't necessarily replicate in the sense of like your inner child. I think things that people like to get from that 60, 70% to 80, 90%, things that, you know, technology at this point in time won't have. So it's really a question of like, let's say those like clients being like, are we okay with 50 to 60% versus do we want that true quality 70, 80, 90% that I think it does require human every once in a while to you know bring out. So overall, yeah, I think AI definitely will replacing, has the opportunity to replace a lot of jobs and people are very scared about that. And I think in general, Gen Z is very, very concerned about like where to kind of go in the larger career landscape. Yes, they're on LinkedIn. Yes, they're on other platforms. But I think the bigger question is just not about whether I'll have a job right now, but or whether I can get a job, but more so what's even the point of getting a job if my job is going to be replaced in five years, my career is going to be over in five years, what's the deal here? So, Do you think they're actively changing kind of the skills that they're working on then to focus a little bit more on future-proof jobs that AI can't take, or do they are they not thinking that far ahead? Well, I, I think there's no blueprint for it. When you're only learning, let's say, the, the traditional curriculum system all throughout middle school, high school, elementary school, you're learning math, you're learning writing, stuff like that. I mean, yes, those are valuable skills, maybe on a day-to-day, but in terms of finding a job, those think skills are becoming less and less apparent. And obviously education is like usually 10, 15 behind, 10, 15 years behind a lot of these developments. Universities themselves, maybe they're teaching a class on one or two things that maybe are relevant, but there's no blueprint. There's no AI university yet that is a credible source for like, if I go to this university, I will get an AI proof job. And so I think it's because it's such a nascent idea to people combined with just like this, I think, fear bearing you see on just media landscapes nowadays. Like, I think part of the problem with the media is that it's all clickbait, right? You sure. want the the biggest, most controversial thing, whether it's one side or the other. Having a nuanced, you know, approach to something is not going to get you very far in the news media outlet nowadays. When you're seeing all that online and come out with the fact that you really have no blueprint for how to get an AI job, how do I become an AI prompt engineer that somehow gets paid $300,000 a year? You see articles like that. There's no blueprint for it. And I think that's what people are concerned about is that that disconnect there. Fascinating. So, Neil, you have the Find Gen Z newsletter. It's a great newsletter. Tell us a little bit about that. How can folks find it? Absolutely. So you can find the Find Gen Z series on LinkedIn or Google. And it's basically just a newsletter that brings the Gen Z perspective on a lot of emerging technologies like social media, search engines, smartphones, and AI. Really kind of bringing a lot of the context into maybe the stuff that you're seeing about Gen Z and one example is like when people say Gen Z is a generation that really cares about 
companies that care about social causes, right? Some people might say, oh, that just means I should donate to social causes, et cetera. But I think for me, one perspective that I think I feel like is very true is that what that means is Gen Z wants companies that build products to actually solve problems, right? That's dedicated to actually addressing an issue. Like it's not just a, Patagonia is not just a clothing brand, but the same the earth brand. And so kind of Find Gen Z series really just provides, provides little tidbits like that, that goes deeper into the prime context of what Gen Z says around marching tech. So yeah, feel free to subscribe and find on Google or LinkedIn. Yeah, we'll link to Neil uh, in the show notes and in the episode. To wrap things up, we started the conversation with what's a habit that you wish you could improve? What's a hobby offline that you wish you could spend more time on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love writing poetry. I've always been like a writer from the beginning, and that's something I've gotten into more this year. And I think what I love about poetry is that it really is you just getting lost in your thoughts. And whether that's for good or bad, I guess your mental health, but it definitely helps you, I think, disconnect from the, the distractions of the digital world and what comes of that, because it really is kind of just, you know, you and your mind and your ideas. So definitely just writing poetry as much as I can and definitely something I want to kind of get more time to. But it does actually, I think, influ- is influenced by my desire to stay connected all the time as well, where it's hard to kind of f- find a place to disconnect and, and really dive deeply into what I'm trying to do. Well, I love that. Hopefully you could find a little bit of time this week to uh, detox from social and spend a little bit more time on poetry. Absolutely. Neil, thanks so much for joining. We appreciate having you and uh, hope the week is amazing. Thanks so much for us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tech Reset Show. Tech Reset is brought to you by Digital Detox, who helps people in over 80 countries improve tech life balance. You could learn more about our products and services and also get your free Dora score at digitaldetox.com. We appreciate your support and look forward to seeing you again soon.